0: Welcome and thank you for joining us for today's webinar, Prioritising People, Driving a Positive Culture of Care for a Sustainable, Resilient Future. My name is Charlotte Brodie, I'm the Global Head of Marketing for the Built Environment at BSI, and I'm delighted to welcome and introduce our expert speaker, Kate Field, Global Head of Health, Safety and Wellbeing here at BSI. Kate drives BSI's global strategy for creating a safer and healthier workplace. An ambassador for cultural change, she puts wellbeing, equality, safety and health at the forefront and inspires colleagues and stakeholders globally to make a difference. And with over 20 years of industry experience, Kate is a recognised consultant, trainer, lecturer and speaker in occupational health, safety and wellbeing. And prior to joining BSI, Kate was Head of Information and Intelligence at the Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, leading on health and safety research strategy and technical content globally. So welcome, Kate. Wonderful to have you with us here today. Moving on to today's agenda, I'll start by giving you a very brief introduction to BSI and then I'll hand over to Kate for the topic today, the culture of care and the relationship between culture and trust. And Kate will then take you through the BSI prioritising people model before we have a quick look at some resources unique to BSI and then we'll head into our Q&A session. So I'll now share a little bit of information with you about who we are. BSI is a global business improvement partner that includes the UK's national standards body, empowering organisations across a range of sectors, including construction and the built environment, to be ready for the world of today and tomorrow. Moving on to what we do, whether it's a standard, certifying a product, a training programme, our software products, a remote audit, all of our products and services in one way or another make our clients more resilient and more prepared for whatever the future holds. And collectively, we support over 21,000 different organisations who deliver services in construction and the built environment around the world in 128 countries we're dedicated to helping all who work across the asset lifecycle to become more sustainable and resilient. So now it's time for our first poll, which is anonymous in session today. And I'd like to ask for the poll to be launched. Um, And we would like to invite you to answer this question, looking at the culture of care, what steps has your organisation undertaken to date? Um, Are there no steps? Um, Have you seen an increased promotion of your EAP, that's your employee assistance programme, more flexible working or training on mental health? So whilst we're waiting for those results to come in, um, just to remind all on today's webinar that we are going to share a copy of today's recording with you after the session. And if you complete the survey at the end, then you'll receive your own copy for further use. So uh, I think we've had a little bit of time there now. Hopefully people have had a a bit of time to think about that and give their answer. So could we see what the uh, results are, please? Okay, so the top answer, 69% who've taken part um, have said that more flexible working has been um, perhaps the the, the most significant, uh, followed by Um, just looking at these results, increased promotion of your employee assistance programme, then training, and then uh, 8% have said none to date. So, thank you very much for taking part, Um, and I would now like to invite Kate to comment and to uh, start today's session. Over to you, Kate
1: lovely thank you charlotte and good day to everyone who's joined uh, the session it's nice to have um, so many of you here today um and yeah that really interesting thank you for participating in the poll um you know we we have seen organizations uh in in some cases not all unfortunately you think about how they can help and, and support their employees and and certainly you know with lockdowns in the introduction of home working you know that has introduced flexible working so i'm not surprised there and we've certainly seen that eap programs have um been promoted more and become more important so if we move on to the next slide then we can start to kind of understand what's been going on and, and i think The key thing is that, you know, COVID-19 has created a culture of care. You know, something really during the pandemic, something really strange and unexpected happened in the corporate world. Um, It rediscovered its humanity. This was a disruption that impacted everyone equally and therefore the hi- hier- hier- oh dear i can't say it today oh dear i must need more coffee hierarchical barriers um, have been broken down you know the the them and us them and us approach has been replaced with we're all in this together which has created this culture of care that i'd argue simply did not exist for, in many organizations before the pandemic and one of the things that we've seen, and I'm sure some of you may have listened to some of my webinars last year, is that, you know, looking after your people does help build resilience for the organisation. But we actually saw that evidenced in BSI's Organisational Resilience Index Report of 2021. It found specifically when we went out and asked organisations that where they had prioritised their people during the pandemic, they were the most resilient, not only riding the wave of disruption during this period, but most critically, they're seizing the opportunities to take forward a really strong recovery as we go forward. So if we move on to this next slide, I think one of the things that we've seen is that it's the pandemic has also um, revealed an uncomfortable truth and there may be a hint of this in in the poll results where eight percent of you indicated that your organization hadn't done anything to help and support um your employees during the the pandemic and you know and sadly we've seen that this cultural of culture of care was not universal you know there there were lots and lots of of news stories from around the world that highlighted You know workers were having to work in unsafe environments and not being provided with things like suitable protective equipment to keep them safe and interestingly um, there's an ongoing Gallup social series poll uh, that runs in the US and that actually had the lowest score of feeling safe in the workplace in the last decade and that's the um, one of the pictures you can see on the slide there but What we've seen is that, you know, historically people aren't prioritised, you know, we're still in a situation where 2.2 million loved ones don't return to their families at the end of the working day, 374 million loved ones are disabled or made ill, some of whom will never be able to work again or will suffer the tragic impacts on quality of their life. And the latest research that's highlighted on this slide from the ILO and the World Health Organisations shows that long working hours are actually killing people. And we can see this Reflection that people aren't prioritised in um, another BSI-sponsored report, the BCI Business Continuity Horizon Scan Report. Each year, this report captures the biggest disruptors to organisations within that year and then looks and asks a question about what the biggest disruptors will be for the next year, next 12 months. And for the last three years of this report, health and safety incidents have scored in the top three disruptors of. The current year. Yet, when organisations ask answer the question about what the future disruptors will be, safety doesn't even make the the top ten. We have this corporate blind spot, is often how I refer to it, when we think about prioritising people and particularly their physical and mental health and safety. We still have the challenge that profit is the priority, and people are seen as a begrudged profit making commodity. So we've got this situation where for this culture of care that's emerged during the the pandemic to show up, we've had to see a much more important cultural shift start to come through, which if we embrace it, And we take it forward, it has really exciting and powerful benefits, not only for organisations, but for individuals. The challenge, though, with acknowledging this shift and this change is to admit a really uncomfortable truth that the most crucial factor has been missing, and that is trust. The COVID 19 pandemic has highlighted that organisations don't trust their people. So if we move on to the next slide, you know, this lack of trust and the culture that underpins it can be seen in many different aspects of an organisation and its approach to its people. Things like, you know, performance management that is focused on uh, output KPIs, not input. Weekly timesheets that are required so you can evidence exactly how many hours you've worked. You know, we've had a situation where flexible or home working hasn't been allowed and the challenge is this lack of trust is not always explicit it can be dressed in plausible sounding business parlance you know things like you know related to your output kpis re- reward and bonus packages timesheets are time and resource management you know uh, not allowing flexible working is because I- ict information you know your information uh structures aren't in place And importantly, the erosion of trust is like the sea relentlessly hitting a cliff face. It's a steady, almost imperceptible erosion, which is undermining the strength and resilience of the organisation. And the thing is, if you look, this trust is evidence and you can see it in the business challenges that are reported by organisations. You know, the sorts of things you can see on on the slide here. You know, the organisations aren't growing. They've got challenges with innovation or productivity. You know, they've got plateaued or even reverse health health and safety incident reductions. You've got talk of stress and burnout and, and mental ill health, you know, this trust is evident if you scratch the surface and look below. So if we move on to the next slide, whilst the COVID-19 pandemic has revealed this uncomfortable truth that we don't trust people, it has also given us a little ember of hope, a little flickering ember of hope. Trust has been tested and previous fears are shown to be based on unfounded assumptions so this this is challenged current perceptions and the biggest shift has been in home working you know we've had this situation where home working has been enforced because of the rules in terms of minimizing contact and where organizations have simply not trusted their workers to work from home fearing that they would abuse the freedom and not deliver the work you know we've seen with COVID-19 vast swathes of the working population went from working in an office one day to working in their kitchen the next and productivity went up Not down. In simple terms, the significant arguments against home working vanished overnight, and organisations realised that workers could be trusted. And here, this is one of the um, quotes on the slide here that we had from one of the um, organisations that took part in the Organisational Resilience Index that I've just mentioned. And I think this sums it up really well. Being a Japanese company, we were quite conservative. We weren't set up for home working. It was something that was frowned upon. This forced us down the road to have to accept working from home and be more flexible and be more open. I think it surprised us just how well we coped. Of course, home working and flexible hours is not the panacea for everyone and and doesn't work, but what COVID-19 has done is shattered these institutional barriers to a new, more people-focused approach a new culture of care that is based on trust. And we've got additional influences that are fanning these um, embers uh, to create a robust flame. We've got Me Too, Black Lives Matter, a focus on you know the delivery of the un- unit United Nations sustainable development goals we've got to move away from shareholder capitalism to stakeholder capitalism which is seen very much in things like ESG environment social and governance reporting so we've got this opportunity so how do we take this forward if we move on to the next slide one of the air oh Ah sorry, there you go, we haven't got the next slide yet, there's a moment to pause before we go into wellbeing programmes and ask another poll, Charlotte please.
0: Or if uh, Charlotte's not
1: there, can we launch the poll and I'm happy to to do that, lovely. Um,
0: (laughs) I'm here Kate, many apologies. That's all right, Um, don't worry. We would love to know if people would like to take part. Um, what has been the impact of your own well workplace well-being programs? Um, uh, we've got five answers there for you to choose. Um, do you not know at this point in time? Um, do you not measure it? Have you just started? Um, increased employee engagement scores? Have you seen that impact or has it been initially positive, um, but now you're seeing that engagement has dropped off? So thank you very much, sorry for the blip there. Um, Looking forward to hearing uh, what people say about that and also just to um, remind you that um, there will be some very good resources at the end of today's webinar for you to access as well. So could we ask for those results to be launched please? Okay, so, oh, quite an interesting mix there. So, we've got a, a split lead between um, those of you who've taken part who said that you, you don't know um, and those who've just started. Uh, and then I believe the leading, the next um, results are that you don't measure it, um, followed by an increased employee engagement score and then um, initially positive and now it's uh, your are finding engagement has dropped off so thank you very much for that um I would now like to hand back to Kate lovely thank you Charlotte don't worry it, it dropped <laughs>
1: It, uh, it it caught me by uh, by surprise as well. The the poll came around so quickly, Um I I think actually th- those results uh, are really ref- reflective. You know, one of one of the things that we see organisations look at to you know support their their people um, is wellbeing programs, and you know wellbeing programs vary from organisation to organisation, but we tend to see common themes, you know, things like what I call yoga and yoga initiatives to promote healthy eating and physical exercise. You see mental resilience training, mental health first aiders, diversity and inclusion committees, EAP and, and guidance on subjects such as sleep and debt and relationships. You often see volunteering and other sort of community engagements and learning hubs and coaching programmes. And reflect, interestingly, uh, reflected in the polls, what we often see is during the first year or two of workplace wellbeing programs, positive effects can be seen. You know, we may see some worker, workers lose weight or stop smoking, employee engagement scores improve, EAP take up rates go up, and maybe even retention and absence rates improve. However, over time, momentum is lost, and there is growing evidence, and, and as was reflected in 15% of the responses in, in the poll. That many workplace wellbeing programs don't deliver measurable benefits um, and actually potentially start to have negative impacts. And there are several reasons for this. If we look at health, health initiatives such as smoking cessation, they need to run for three to five years to be effective, not just stop t- over. Resilience training and mental health first aiders focus on mitigation and not prevention within the workplace. The unconscious bias of white privilege undermines many diversity and inclusion initiatives. Workers are not given time for learning and development and one of the biggest challenges we have is that functional teams such as health and safety and human resources work in isolation rather than together, even though both of those functions are focused on looking after and prioritising people. So if we move on and explore wellbeing in a little bit more detail, there are various definitions of wellbeing and they nearly all reflect that it's about much more than just physical and mental health, it's about how we feel, our expectations and our sense of fulfilment. And this is seen in the most recent definition of well-being at work from the new international standard on psychological health and safety at work, ISO 45003. And you can see the definition there. It's the fulfillment of the physical, mental, social and cognitive needs and expectations of a worker related to their work. So it is a very um, encompassing and holistic approach that needs to be Uh, adopted and well-being is about then addressing this psychological contract that you get between a worker and uh, an employer um, to create the right conditions for providing fulfillment and that fulfillment is what unlocks an individual's potential and it enhances organizational resilience and it's all about creating a culture of trust and trust is the output of the culture of an organization and it's established and underpinned by leadership and their individual and group values attitudes managerial practices perceptions, competencies and patterns of behavior and that is what underpins trust and it's important to understand that trust always exists but it can be misplaced abused or of course, strengthened. And if we move on to the next slide, what do we need to strengthen and create a culture of trust? Well, it's clear you need a collaborative, communicative, communicative emotionally intelligent leadership. You need a diverse, inclusive and ethical workplace, which is based on respect and fairness. You need opportunities for lifelong learning and employability a balanced effort and reward ratio, work and workplaces that do prevent physical and mental harm and promote good physical and psychological health and you need to create a workplace that has a focus on wider social capital and social value. So these are the underpinning principles that you need to create a culture of trust. And if we move on to the next slide, it's important to understand that it takes time to create this culture of trust, and there's often a journey that organisations go on. And one of the primary reasons that wellbeing um, programs fail, this this flickering ember of hope that we have flickers and goes out is because organizations approach well-being as a set of initiatives a sticking plaster over the deeper wounds of low trust they are unwilling to commit to the significant cultural change shift that is needed to build trust and take a strategic long-term te- approach to prioritizing people to achieve this cultural change and recruit and create this culture of trust you can't approach it as a set of initiatives to tick corporate social responsibility boxes if you do that you're just going to undermine trust from day one what you need is if you like a complete restructuring of corporate DNA and that takes time so what you often see is this kind of cultural maturity it starts in emerging this is where organizations are just focusing on survival and and building so quite often it's it's new or young organizations or organizations that have gone through things like mer- mergers and acquisitions or or even you know a, organizational restructures and therefore there's a maybe a lack of governance in place and it's often reactive and compliance focused and you you have transactional leaderships so a very hierarchical leadership. Once that kind of initial phase is passed, you move into established where those governance frameworks are in, pra- in place and processes are also established you have a much more proactive approach to compliance and often focused on reputation awareness that actually it's not a question of just complying with the law, it's a question of the brand and the reputation of the organization. And at this stage, you quite often see, you know, transformational leadership. You know, they're they're a leader that has a vision and, and aims to take everybody on that journey to create that vision. And then at at the top you've got accelerating and here you've got an organisation that has the best balance that is needed for resilience between being very agile and able to adapt to opportunities and being defensive in terms of, you know, protecting um, and taking robust action when disruptions happen. And what you see in organisations in accelerating is that it creates um, a culture of trust where there is autonomy and creativity is unleashed. And that gives that individual fulfillment that is needed for workplace wellbeing. And the output for the organisation is a resilient organisation. The challenge that we have is that most organisations never reach that final stage, they never reach accelerating. So if we move on to the next slide, we can start to explore why that is and what organisations can do. Because organisations are failing to reach that accelerating stage, BSI has developed a prioritising people best practise model. And this model maps out what is needed to create that culture of trust what it really looks like for in order to create the right conditions for that individual fulfillment for well-being and the output of that for the organization is organizational resilience and you can see this is and i'm going to explain this model in a little bit more more detail you can see that maybe for some of you who are familiar with it it's adapting the needs framework for maslow's hierarchy and it sets out three stages incorporating a total of 16 elements that are required to demonstrate you know a a prioritizing people a human-centered approach and importantly whilst each, each stage identifies the people elements that is required it does also um demonstrate what the organizational benefits that are that come from that you know organizations that are resilient agile and innovative and this model is designed to be applied to achieve this significant cultural change that might be needed the framework has to be embedded into the organisation. It's not a one-off exercise. This is a model that is designed to change the corporate DNA that I mentioned. And although it's visually represented in a linear model, and I'll, I'll talk about it that way, organisations can start at any point or address multiple aspects at any time. Um, and it's important to understand that you know you can take this approach, you can kind of take bits of it or focus on key areas. But if the basic needs at the bottom are not effectively addressed, then any progress that you make at uh, the higher levels and to meet additional needs um, will be short-lived, and actually your foundations are weak and it will crumble. So let's explore the model in a little bit more detail um, and explore what these 16 elements actually are so if we move on to the next slide we start with what are basic needs and physiological basic needs so these will be used by the organization to develop decent safe healthy and compliant workplaces Um, with the next stage which is safeties but we'll start with physiological. So this is focused on those most basic biological needs that an individual requires for the maintenance and repair of the human body in simple terms. Until these are met little else is is feasible. If we are thirsty then our basic biological need to hydrate kicks in and it's important to understand as well that these physiological needs are also essential for other elements within the model. So again, if we look at hydration, actually it's critical to thermal regulation, which would be part of providing a workplace that is free from injury and ill health. Rest and sleep are vital, physiological, uh, are vital for physiological health. You know, there's lots of evidence that we need Uh, You know, seven to eight hours sleep um, in order to maintain our physical and mental health. But actually, you know, that level of sleep is also really important for cognitive functions around creativity and that creativity is required for innovation. The health status of an individual has a direct link with their ability to perform to the best of their abilities. I think we all know and understand that if we are feeling physically and mentally healthily and well, you know, we will perform better and therefore we need an environment that creates um, and has the mechanisms to enhance that personal health and, th- and this is where a lot of the traditional sort of well-being activities focus wellness activities this is your yoga and yoga type approach um, so we need that but it's also important to understand that if there is a um, physical or mental ill health that is or injury that is work related or not work related actually we need supportive processes in place to help people um, either stay in work or come back to work um, after recovery so what we've got at this basic first level of physiological needs is workplace welfare welfare so you know this includes some stuff that we often overlook you know is there is that free access to clean drinking water are there enough toilets that are located close enough to the work work environment i mean particularly one of the challenges that we see in the built environment and particularly construction is there is a challenge in terms of gender representation so where you do have women on sites they often there aren't enough toilets for women or they're so far away from the main construction site that actually you know people ladies don't have the time to go and visit the toilet so welfare covers a a whole range rest and recuperation as i mentioned is is around in ensuring that people are having enough time and sleep so this is about breaks this is about positive sleep um positive shift patterns personal health so this is looking at the enablers to give people the tools to help and support their physical and their mental health and of course as I've mentioned absence management and rehabilitation. So if we move on to the next element of basic needs which is safety and this is around you know creating the safe and healthy workplace and workplaces that are free from physical mental and cognitive injury and ill health and you know this feeling safe and secure is a primal need that we have and must be met in full you know no worker should be harmed by work physically mentally or cognitive therefore organizations need to take preventative steps And it's important to understand, and coming back to the point that this model isn't linear, that many of the other elements that we'll cover and see in the model, particularly in belonging and esteem, will contribute or or will be supported by creating this safe and healthy workplace, either directly or indirectly, and and particularly um, psychological health management. So, part of this is then uh, creating a workplace that is free from adverse social behavior and we're talking about things like bullying harassment and, and violence here whether that's physical verbal sexual threatened or even actual and in particularly with bullying and harassment they are often a reflection of the behaviors and attitudes of an organization its culture and you know at this stage uh, It's focused on compliance, so organisations will often develop initial policies to meet legislative needs, maybe on discrimination or equality or whatever it happens to be. It's often driven by a focus of being reactive and compliance driven. And... It's important, obviously, to, to look at that, but you know you won't establish the, the culture change and, and create the trust that is needed um, without addressing these adverse social um, behaviours. So it is the foundation for a proactive cultural shift, but it's only the first step. And later on, we'll explore what is really needed to create a fair and respectful workplace. Secure and sustainable employability. So within this, we've got the security around having a secure job um, and having financial security. And that's a basic need um, without which both psychological and physical ill health um, can't can't really thrive. Um, And, you know, forms of insecure employment such as zero hours or temporary contracts are the most obvious forms of insecure employment. But we also see this this fear or this concern about job security arise when there are company restructures or acquisitions, economic downturns, pandemics, um, but also, you know, life changes, entering the workforce, maternity, or even, you know, starting to think about your latter year's career and as we have an ever-growing aging workforce organizations need to think about those working dish conditions that are sustainable for the entire work life of, a, of an individual and that means implementing preventative and proactive measures to keep workers healthy physically and mentally and embed the capabilities and capacities that they need to work over their entire life cycle. And this is what we mean by sustainable employability. So if we move on to the next level of the model, um, this is around psychological needs, and it starts with belonging and getting this group, this set of psychological needs right means that you will create the right environment for an engaged, committed and productive workforce. And it includes these four elements. Um, A belonging is around consultation and participation, good working relationships, work-life balance and social engagement. You know, good relationships, both at work and at home, provide the social capital which individuals need, that we as individuals really need for good, particularly mental health and engagement and that sense of fulfillment that it is needed for well-being. And, you know, you've got some key elements that are absolutely critical. If an organization is really committed to prioritising its people, you need effective and ongoing consultation and participation. Um, that is absolutely critical for creating trust. You need supportive relationships by leadership, line management and between colleagues and contractors. This is a really important part of psychological needs. And in particular, this this element in terms of creating those positive relationships, It really requires high levels of emotional intelligence, particularly for those who have line management responsibilities. You know, there's very good evidence that suggests that those managers who positively influence workplace culture and keep employees informed through effective communication are perceived by their employees as trustworthy. And work-life balance is obviously very closely aligned with what we heard about earlier at the basic needs level about rest and recuperation. But here it's focused on the importance of having time to spend with family and friends as part of an individual's psychological health, as well as the positive effects that that social connection brings. As I'm sure many of us know, whenever there's an imbalance, that can have negative implications, both physically and mentally. You know, where we feel fatigued or overworked, then we have this challenge. And as I've mentioned, you know, the recent ILO and WHO study has shown that people who work excessively long hours um, are more likely to die in, in simple terms. And this is an area where trust can be most quickly eroded. So where organisations try to put in a mechanism, so, you know, not prevent, trying to stop people answering emails while they're on vacation and leave, but then your boss sends you one while they're on leave. You know, that's a really good example of undermining the trust. But of course, on the flat flip side it's also an area where trust can be enhanced particularly through the use of things like flexible working and the last elements at this level social engagement is beyond is recognizing that we are more than just our working persona you know we have family we have friends we have a life outside of work and that is incredibly important to our sense of belonging and psychological well-being and it's really important to understand that you know that this needs to be reflected uh, across the workforce particularly at both ends of the age spectrum you know both those those who are younger and also who are older can often struggle with this social engagement and therefore creating mechanisms within the workplace to facilitate this is really positive so if we move on to the next slide, then we'll look at the next um, element in terms of psychological needs, which is belonging. And um, at this level, we're, we're focused on esteem. And it's, this is a really critical step in reaching this sense of fulfillment that is needed for well-being. And this is one of the reasons why many organisations, well-being initiatives you know, don't bring long term or benefits is that organizations don't recognize this and esteem needs are driven by the human desire for social acceptance and status Um, and it's driven by external factors and internal factors and first and foremost if we look at um, fair and respectful workplaces you know it's it will be impossible for an individual to feel esteem without regard for social acceptance as well when there are barriers or real or perceived to inclusion so to really create a, a culture of trust you need to achieve real diversity equity and inclusion and that means uh, a complete deconstruction of human governance policies and processes followed by a step by step step rebuilding of those processes because what often happens is we try and incorporate the other (laughs) whatever that may be into an existing framework that was never designed for it was only designed for a single set of homogeneous people and therefore you know in order to create this cultural change and create trust you need to completely deconstruct what you have in place and let's be honest that never happens and that's why we continue to have issues with diversity equity and inclusion if we look at effort and reward um, there again very good evidence that shows that high effort and low reward jobs are particularly associated with things like burnout, and the reward is not about simple financial reward obviously financial security as we've touched on is important it comes within kind of basic needs but at this level it's about the esteem that comes from a recognition of a job well done you know often a simple thank you is all that's required at this level but is often overlooked and perhaps the most overlooked area of prioritizing people is autonomy and it is the esteem that comes from independence and freedom that is given when there is autonomy. This is about empowering workers to make decisions about the way they work. It might include aspects such as um, discretion over the way the work is carried out, the pace, the deadlines, the workload, um, ability to control the work through participation in decision making. So this has clearly has links with consultation and participation and the autonomy to decide when and where work is delivered, things like flexible working, and that obviously then also links back to work-life balance. This autonomy unlocks the discretionary effort that is really needed for organisations to become effective and successful. And if we move on to the last slide, the last element of this model is the sense of fulfillment and actualization that comes. And this is about creating the creativity and the autonomy that delivers innovation. So, actualization for an individual is the ability to con- continue to, to grow, to be creative, to adapt, to fulfill whatever that individual sense of fulfillment is. And for an organisation, the benefits of unlocking this potential can be summarised in a single word, which is innovation. And a quote from ISO 56000, um, engaging in innovation activities is a way for an organisation to be future focused and effectively deliver on its overall objectives of securing prosperity, sustainable sustainability and longer term relevance and survival therefore innovation is a critical part of organizational resilience so hopefully what's become clear as a given you an overview of this model is that all of those preceding elements need to be in place to create the right conditions for innovation and it's about creating this culture of trust Innovation is impossible without trust. And if we move on to the next slide, you can see that just in summary, that these three elements, basic, psychological, fulfillment, and the 16 elements that support them, come together and create the right conditions for individual fulfillment, so the benefit for the people, a positive workplace wellbeing programme, but it also creates the right conditions for a resilient organisation. And this is what this model is designed to do. It's designed to create that step change that is needed to really unlock people's potential. And with that culture of trust, organisations will not only survive, but they will thrive and accelerate to remain relevant and resilient. So if we move on to the next slide, you are the first to hear the presentation on this new model. The white paper that supports it was published yesterday. Um, So there is a full white paper that explains in much more detail the context to this model um, and what is needed under each of the elements. I've just given you really a highlight in the overview today. When you get um, uh, the email after this session, you will get a link so that you can download the white paper um, and explore it in more detail um, and in more depth. And if we move on to the next slide,
0: that brings us over to you, Charlotte, thank you. Thank you, Kate, Um, a really comprehensive model there and uh, do have a look out for Kate's white paper, absolutely hot off the press. Um, So we're very excited to be able to share that with you, um, our audience today. And in addition to the white paper... Uh, We also have a a report um, called The New World of Construction, which looks at some of these topics um, and including others such as strategic digitalisation and what that means for health and safety professionals. Um, So that could be uh, very helpful for you uh, in terms of wider reading. In that report, um, you will also find a link to a quiz and that enables you to test the maturity of your own health, safety and wellbeing um, sort of programme really and see how you fare as an organisation or perhaps how your strategic leaders who will be driving a a positive strategy, uh, they may be interested in that as well. So do have a look out for that. And then also to let you know that on the 7th of July, um, there are three webinars. Um, Kate will be um, involved with these as well, Um, and we have uh, a a series of webinars around the world um, at different time zones, which really launch um, the ISO's new occupational health and safety standard on psychological health to explain its relationship with ISO 45001. It's a really comprehensive programme. I think it would be a must, really, for health and safety and wellbeing professionals. We'll be exploring the issues, challenges and opportunities associated with psychological ill health, uh, discuss the impact that COVID-19 has had on psychological health and how ISO 45003 can help. And in the final session, um, it's a guide essentially for would-be users on how to implement ISO 45003. So, Those are the uh, useful things which are coming up and resources which are available for you. Um, And now we're going to go into our Q&A session. Um, Thank you to those people who sent their questions in in advance. And the first one I'd like to ask you, Kate, is, um, really it's more of an observation um, for you to comment on Uh, and it's a a solid understanding of regulatory compliance is key in this person's view to driving a positive culture in people Um, without this knowledge and understanding the credibility of our industry no matter how positive will be compromised Um, so what are your thoughts around compliance and, and a positive culture
1: yeah so I think you know without a doubt c- compliance is absolutely critical um you know but I think the the challenge or the thing to understand is compliance is is the minimum level um you're right if you don't have compliance, then you are not going to create a culture of trust if you're if you're not compliant, if you're not m- meeting that minimum level of of health and safety or actually you know uh, diversity and inclusion um, then you know you you simply aren't going to create a culture of, of trust. Um, I'd, I'd agree with that but I think it is important to recognize that compliance is is minimum levels so it's an important stepping stone but actually to really create um, a robust culture of trust and, and create the elements that are needed for fulfillment you have to go, a long way beyond um, compliance, and that's why, if you think back to the cultural maturity level, you know the first level, emerging, is the area that is focused on compliance. Um, you know, actually, it's the higher levels where you start to move into more transformational leadership, a better focus on um, on things like autonomy and processes and governance, um, and as I reflected in the presentation, you know, actually there are very few organisations that then really develop a robust and holistic approach that, that is set out in this best practice model that I've described that reach that accelerating level of maturity.
0: Absolutely. So that is really the, uh, you know, the absolute pinnacle, isn't it? Mm -hmm. If you've got all of those elements covered Um, and uh, any standard, this is the second question, any standard for pandemic risk management certification? Any advice there?
1: Okay, so I think there's a a number of things in in this area, you know, um, pandemic risk management should be part of your existing health and safety management and business continuity. This is where, again, two areas that quite often don't talk to each other, health and safety and business continuity uh, should come together. So there are existing frameworks, but also to reflect specifically um, the needs and the challenges of, this pandemic, COVID-19, there is a new ISO, ISO PAS 45005 on COVID safe working. And that really is about creating best practice and guidance for all of the elements that are needed to provide a safe working during COVID-19. And it covers, you know, not just the the physical environment, but the home environment, the need for um, psychological um, health and safety approaches, you know, your 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 track and trace processes that covers it very very comprehensively. So if you're not familiar with that as a PAS um, publicly available standard, it's freely available um, from ISO and also um, BSI's shop. If you search for it and go into the page, you'll see that it is freely available.
0: Um, So yeah, it's a really really good guide if you're not familiar with that. Brilliant, thank you. So definitely one to look out for. Um, and uh, how do you approach people who, I mean, this is a very sensitive area. How, how would you approach people who seem that they might be struggling mentally, considering the stigma around mental health? Okay, so this is, this is a, a really
1: good question. I think there are a number of points to kind of make. Um, the, the first one is to not assume and make a diagnosis, unless you are a medical professional. So that's that's the first point. Um, I think the the other thing is is really two elements. So what you sh- again, this comes back to the culture of the organization, you should be creating culture of an organization where those um barriers, the perceived stigma or discrimination that might be associated with mental ill, Ill health are broken down. So that if people are struggling, are feeling un- unwell. They have the confidence to come forward and, and seek help and support within the workplace, or discuss what they need during that period of illness. At an individual level, when you, if you're looking to have a conversation, um, it's really uh, creating open questions and listening in a in a non-judgmental way. You know, <laughs> starting with the question, "How are you?" is good, but quite often if people are struggling, they, they won't engage. So thinking about questioning around, I've, I've noticed that you, you seem out, you're out of character, is everything okay with you? Actually just framing the question in a slightly different way is really important. And thinking about when and where you ask that question um you know if you are concerned um and you you want to give um somebody the opportunity uh to uh, talk to you if that's what they want and they're ready for then you know n- asking that question in, in the middle of a team meeting is not really appropriate so you know there is um there are approaches that you can take for creating the, the right space and the right conditions for enabling that conversation if it's the right thing for the individual um, but the key thing is really to ask with an open question and then listen in a really non-judgmental way if you're not familiar with kind of how, how to start those conversations there's really good guidance on things like uh, on charity websites and so mind is a really good example of, of
0: ways of, of having a conversational starting a conversation wonderful thank you and uh, uh, another question in around I guess this this is absolutely the, the space that many of us find ourselves in now um, looking at the current hybrid way of working and perhaps where employers are encouraging working from home um, how do you see the future of sustainable safe yet cost-effective and smart built office environment. So, what are your thoughts on the working environment there? So, I think, um, and this was this was a subject I covered in a, a webinar last year. So, uh, have
1: have a look at our on demand webinars on um, the BSI website. So, I think it's it's clear that for Uh, many organisations where they have roles that can effectively be done at home or partly at home some of the time Um, and we've seen some really exciting uh, developments actually again within the built environment and and again construction in particular you know quite often there's a perception that um, flexible or hybrid working isn't something that can be done on construction sites but there's some really good um, and positive moves that are, are going on And, you know, that will then change the workplace that is created. You know, workplaces will become much more spaces for collaborative working, for team working. When you do need to come together as a team, the workplaces are going to need to consider that there's more hybrid working. So this is a a challenge we've had um, in our offices Um, and I've, I've heard it from some other clients as well that because not everybody is in the office, if you are having meetings, you know, you're still dialing in. Um, and actually that can increase the level of noise if you've got a lot of people working in open open plan and all dialing into different conversations, it it can create a lot of noise. So we will see an adaptation of working space. Um, I think we might see uh, more approaches where we have maybe smaller hubs where people come together for those collaborative sessions rather than maybe a a large corporate head office that we've seen before. So I think it will be a change. I think there'll be a focus on creating an environment that is much more engaging for people to want to come into. So something that doesn't look um, so, uh, Uh, what's the, the phrase I'm looking for I suppose so corporate and bland if you're coming in to have collaborative innovation type sessions you want an environment that will reflect that so i think we'll see a focus on you know natural lighting natural air systems plants you know simple things that maybe have been removed from workplaces because we'll need to create an environment that people want to come into if we're going to get them back
0: into the office and they don't need to be there absolutely and we've had another question a, a interesting question in um which is asking really who is in, who would be involved in the prioritising people element um who would be involved in a task force to look into this area of of interest um any any observations on that yeah so this is a, this is a great question and it's this is really
1: important you know i think one of the things that we see historically um is that there can be very good initiatives around well-being which are often led by human resources hr Uh, departments, then you have really good stuff that's going on to look after the physical and mental health and safety of the workforce, which is looked after by kind of health and safety professionals. Um, And they don't work together. Um, And then in the middle, you've got the the individuals, the employees and the the line managers, and they're not engaged in, in the process. So to create the take forward this best practice approach you need to break down those silos and in particular you need HR and health and safety professionals to work together. Um, you know, if you think back to the model, there are key elements where you'll need their expertise from particular areas. So, creating a safe and healthy work environment, you'll need the expertise from health and safety professionals. For creating the right processes around career development, you'll need the expertise of health and, uh, of HR professionals. So. Again, again, this re- is reflecting the culture of the organisation. Unless you're creating trust and you're c- creating those collaborative relationships, then you are never going to reach that accelerating level of
0: maturity and uh, deliver this best practice approach to workplace wellbeing. Absolutely. I think from your observations there, it's that collaboration is the key word there, isn't it?
1: bringing those parties
0: together. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Well, This now brings me um, to the end of today's session. Um, So thank you, Kate, as always, for your brilliant insight um, and your observations. And of course, for sharing with us these very new um, materials, all based on your thinking, um, which other people can hopefully um, read and and get real value from. Um, thank you also to our audience um, for taking part in the polls and of course for joining us today uh, and please do complete our survey at the end of the session so that you get access to the links and the copies of, of today's recording um, as we've mentioned and uh, we very much hope that you can join us um, again soon. Thank you for joining us. Bye-bye.